For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, so it's good to be back in the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, if you haven't been here, just to recap what we've, what we've done in the book so far briefly. Remember, this book started out by Paul talking about how he was alienated from the Corinthian church. They were, things were really rocky in their relationship. He was getting really worried about them. And by, um, you know, these false teachers had come in and were trash talking Paul. And uh, by cutting them off from Paul, they were also cutting them off from good teaching. And the, these guys were in real spiritual danger. But then he has this breakthrough moment where he gets this report from Titus that the, the Corinthian church, they've dropped uh, basically their allegations against Paul and they're back on the right track with God. And he's so excited. He goes on the longest tangent that we ever see him go on in any of his letters, five whole chapters. He's been on a tangent now. Um, where he is talking about what, what it really looks like, what authentic spirituality, what really serving God looks like. And he presents all these different pictures that we've been unpacking for the past couple of months. Well, tonight, he basically is gonna, he's gonna wrap up his tangent by coming back around to his relationship with the Corinthians. And he's gonna talk about their relationship with each other. Um, and... Um, the, the passage tonight, it's about spiritual friendships, but the structure of this is sort of tricky. You know, the, the passage is sort of structured like a sandwich, okay? So here we've got the Dunkin' Donuts glazed donut bacon sandwich <laughs> with a heavily peppered egg in there as well, as you can see. I know some of you are going to go get this tonight after CT. <laughs> but, you know, the way the passage is set up is the first couple verses... It's talking about open your heart to us. Paul is appealing for closeness, for intimacy, for, for them to open back up. They had closed off to Paul. The last couple of verses, he says the same thing. He says, make room for us in your hearts. And so the first three and the last three verses is an appeal to closeness, to intimacy. In the middle, though, it's a little bit different Middle six verses, he says, do not be unequally yoked. Come out from their midst. Let us cleanse ourselves. The middle of this passage is actually about separation. And so it's, so it's the whole sandwich is about spiritual friendship. So it's like a, it's like a spiritual friendship sandwich, but it sort of talks about closeness on the ends and separation as somehow part of spiritual friendship in the middle. And so we're going to unpack the meat first and then we'll unpack the, uh, the carb layers there. So let's start reading in 614. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. He starts with this command, this uh, verb to be bound together. In other translations, it's famously said in King James Version, do not be unequally yoked. New living, do not team up with. The NET margin has, do not be mismatched. Um, it's, it's a word that only appears once in scripture, uh, heterozugos. And so um, it's uh, unequally yoked or mismatched is probably the right way to take this. Unequally put together. And, um, you know, this is actually based on Old Testament scripture, which says, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. What is he talking about? How does that relate to spiritual friendships? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, the ox and the donkey, you know, a yoke was supposed to be put on two animals of similar size. You might yoke up your oxen and then you could hook a plow up to that. And they could pull the plow through the field and it would turn over the soil and you could farm your field. However, 
If you were going to hook an ox and a donkey up together, that would be a mismatch. You know, here you've got your gigantic, powerful ox, and here you've got your donkey. (laughs) And if you're going to put a yoke on these two, that's not a recipe for, for farming success right there. Um, you know, it's, these are two different animals. They're different, different size, different height, different width. Um, they've got different towing capacity, different towing speed. And so this is actually going to be harmful. You're not going to get much done. It's going to be harmful to these animals involved. It's not fair to either one of them. You either get two of one or two of the other if you want to plow your field. And so this is one of the animal rights verses in the Bible. And so... Um, you know, so if, if you're hooking up different things to the plow, you know, you might end up in a situation like this horse and this, uh, they're not getting along, obviously. Um, here's a guy hooked a camel up to an ox. <laughs> um, and um, this, this guy's yoked to this other one. They're about the same size, but the guy on the right's just like, I'm done for now. The guy on the left's like, what the heck? And he's not really, neither one is real happy with the, this arrangement here. And so Paul, he's drawing on this Old Testament imagery, but he's applying it to friendships. And he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. We need to figure out what he's talking about. First of all, what he's not saying. We need to be clear about this. He's talking to Christians. He's not saying you cannot have friendships with non-Christians. When we look at scripture, we see quite the opposite. You know, we look at the life of Jesus and what was he called? He was called a friend of sinners. The religious people couldn't believe he was hanging out with all these quote-unquote sinful people that they looked down upon. And so Jesus, these people um, who are far from, from the Father, really felt loved by Jesus and were won over by him in large numbers. Paul even says in his first letter to the Corinthians, he says, I wasn't talking about avoiding unbelievers. They thought he told them to avoid all non-Christians. He says, no, you'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. He says, I don't want you to do that. He says later in 1 Corinthians, I've become all things to all people, so by all possible means I might save some. And so Paul says we have got a very important role to play in people's lives, to show them the love of God, to bring a message like we studied last time that we're ambassadors sent by God to to a foreign country with a message of love and peace. And so he's saying, no, I'm not forbidding friendship with non-Christians. We should have friendships with non-Christians. I want to be totally clear on that point. He's also not forbidding Christians from engaging with culture either. And unfortunately, Christians, they will be like the culture in all the wrong ways, totally, you know, obsessed with money, spending themselves in debt, living just as luxurious lives as their non-Christian neighbors. Uh, They'll be also just as lonely. The the marriages, the families are not working. So we're Christians are like non-Christians in all the wrong ways. And then they pick very strange ways to be different from non-Christians. They're often separate from the separation point. They're often separate from the world in very weird ways. Um, you know, this is, an exa- this is a picture of a, a monastery in Greece where Christians spent hundreds of years carving, climbing these, these cliffs and carving these monasteries, building these monasteries up on these cliffs. Like that was what God wanted them to do. Like that's what God meant when he said be separate. No, that's not what he meant. Or you look at modern day examples of ways Christians are separate, ways Christians are different. I don't know if you caught Christian Fashion Week 2014. There's quite the buzzfeed on this. (laughs) 
Uh, here's the drink bar. You can see there's no alcohol <laughs> at the VIP party. Iced tea, soda, and soda and iced tea. <laughs> Not surprisingly, no drinking. There was also no dancing. <laughs> Some Christians are very against dancing. We're not supposed to dance. Now, some of us, we probably shouldn't be dancing. <laughs> not for any moral reason, but just because we'd be embarrassing ourselves. And so, uh, if you're like me, you tend to abstain from those activities, not for any religious reason. Um, there's a lot of good fashion. The original diva, Proverbs 31. <laughs> I heart my husband. Christian girls rock. But if you, missed, if you missed the Christian Fashion Week, you can still pick up quite a few t-shirts online. I just picked eight of my favorites. You can, you can tell me which one you like the best. Not today, Satan. <laughs> Jesus, fa nutritional facts, love, 100%. Joy, 100% of your daily recommendation. It goes on. Chill, I've got this. God. <laughs> How about this one? Trump. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Hallowed be thy gains. <laughs> that should definitely be a tank top, though, don't you think? <laughs> Ask me about God. <laughs> I kind of like this one. Jesus got my back. <laughs> And last but not least, I got 99 problems, but my faith ain't one. <laughs> Very strange. It's like Christians, they avoid all the, the good movies and they watch the Christian ones. And we can't listen to non-Christian music and read non-Christian books or, you know, be, on, be up on anything going in the world. That's not what he's saying here. And it's a shame that this is unfortunately what Christians are known for, being super weird and dorky in a lot of people's minds. What is he saying then when he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers? What he is saying is, when you become a Christian, it's going to have an effect on your relationships. Like he said just in the previous chapter, <clears throat> if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so there's a fundamental change that takes place when you come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ where you're completely forgiven. You're adopted as part of his family. Um, it's like, you know, one analogy used is born again. It's like this is when real spiritual life begins. You've got his spirit living inside of you. You've got a new leader. He's Jesus now. You know, you're, you're in God's family. He's your dad. And that's going to have an impact on your relationships, when that drastic of a change happens in your life, Paul says. <clears throat> and he goes on to illustrate this with five rhetorical questions. He says, what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Yeah, if, if you're in a business partnership and you know, you're, you're linked in with somebody and your partner wants to do something unethical and you don't, you know, you have to, you have, you can't really do halfway on that. It's either going to be one or the other. Both have decision-making responsibility. Both, both have authority to do that decision. What fellowship has light with darkness? Yes, again, they can't, how can they share the same space? You know, if you flip on the light, the darkness goes away. You know, when you turn on the light, it's not like half the room fills up with light and the other half stays dark, like some wall between the two. 
No, it's one or the other. He says, what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or that's a word for Satan that he uses here. Um, yeah, you know, First um, John 3 says, Jesus Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And uh, Acts says, when we become a Christian, we're transferred from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. It's a complete, he's talking in very black and white terms here. And he says, what harmony can they have? The word is symphonies. That's where you get our word symphony. Imagine the London Symphony Orchestra coming out to play some music, and half of them, their music is Bach, and the other half, the music is Beethoven, and they sit down to play. That's not going to be, that's not, they're not going to make good harmony that way. And then, not one, but two conductors come out, half of them are following one, and half of them are following the other. They'd be better off just having two separate orchestras at that point, two separate symphonies, and uh, have everybody be on the same page. What is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Yes, this is another one of those transformations that takes place when we become a Christian. God's spirit comes and dwells inside of us. And he's, you know, in the Old Testament, they had a temple where, that was supposed to be only for the worship of God. And uh, really bad things started happening. Sometimes the king of Israel would marry... Uh, a woman who was an idol worshiper and she would bring her idols with her and put them in the temple along with all, all the detestable practices like they got into child sacrifice to these pagan gods like ritual prostitution which is basically ancient sex trade where women were used sexually in these temples until they died or they got just too, you know, too old to be of any good and then they just kind of cast them out. And um, God says, you can't have the temple and put other stuff in there, all right? And we are, we are like a temple of the living God now. We, God's spirit dwells in us. That temple in the Old Testament pointed to what God was going to do in us someday. And so <clears throat> Paul's teaching here, what does it mean to be unequally yoked? He's teaching against getting yourself into relationships with non-believers that would cause you to compromise your faith. It's probably the best way of summarizing what he's teaching here. So let's think about this. Application. One way this is often applied is in marriage. What he's saying is, um, you know, in marriage you make pretty important life decisions together. And for a, for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, you're, you're different at a pretty fundamental level. You've got to make decisions about, you know, how are we going to spend our money? How are we going to spend our time? Are we going to have kids? And if so, how are we going to raise those kids? What kind of, you know, where are we going to live? And so there's all these decisions that need to be made where you're trying to live life together. And, you know, foundational differences in worldview are pretty hard on a marriage. This has been studied. Naomi Riley, journalist, in her book, Till Faith Do We Part, she says, according to calculations based on the 2001 American Religious Identification Survey, with more than 35,000 respondents, people who've been in mixed religion marriages were three times more likely to be divorced or separated than those who were in same-faith marriages. That's bad. You know, it's, it's not really not fair to either spouse, the Christian or the non-Christian. You're setting your, your marriage up for failure here. You're, you're highly increasing the chances of failure, at least. And um, also, it's, not, it's confusing to the kids. Where there's maybe this tug of war between mom and dad. Um, you know, I, I knew a girl once who... Um, 
She got engaged to this dude who was a non-believer, and we, you know, we, we showed her this passage, talked with her about it, but she decided to plow ahead with it anyway, and she was miserable. That marriage did not last a year, just because they were on such different pages. The guy started having an affair with somebody he worked with. It was, it was really heart, heartbreaking. And Paul is saying, don't get yourself into this situation here, okay? He's not saying Christians should go home and get divorced from their non-Christian spouses. That was actually a question that came up in 1 Corinthians. And he said, some of you, you became a Christian after you got married. And so you're, just, you're, you're in a very different ethical situation if that's, if that's what you're facing. And he tells them, you need to stay and be a, a, a light for God in that marriage. But he is saying to single Christians, which would apply to a lot of us here, you should find a Christian to marry. And um, you should hold out for that. So that's one area of unequal yoking that this is often applied. Another one is business partnerships. Yeah, you know, if you've, if you've got a job, right, and your employer asks you to do some things you're feeling uncomfortable with, you know, you can just go find another job, right? Employment at will. On the other hand, Let's say you get into a business partnership where each of you have invested tens of thousands of dollars and you've poured in so much sweat equity getting this business up and off the ground. And then your partner wants to do some things that are unethical or he just wants to go take the business in a different direction that you just don't agree with. That gets pretty tricky. You're yoked at that point. And, you know, you can get unyoked, but it gets real complicated. Uh, a friend of mine, actually, uh, I was talking to recently about his, his company, sort of went through a situation like this where there was two partners, and one of them, uh, that one wanted uh, her whole life to be about the business and make as much money as possible, and the other partner said, I'd like to just have a normal work week and still make plenty of money, and they basically had to unyoke. They sort of had to split that company into two parts and untangle all the assets and move the offices and everything. So it got sort of complicated, and sometimes these things can go, they can get pretty nasty. And so, um, again, this is, if you're already yoked, you're in a different position. But again, he's, you know, one application would be, let's, let's be careful getting into a situation like this where we might have to compromise or suffer really badly for not compromising. What about false teachers and false religion? This is another one. A little bit less obvious at first, but if you think about it, False teachers in Corinth were trash-talking Paul. And the Corinthians were sort of yoked in with them. They weren't just tolerating them. They were letting them teach. They were financially supporting them. They were hosting them, feeding them. They, they had built these sort of intertwined relationships. And now um, <clears throat> they're yoked with them, and, it, and it's really affecting their, their spiritual lives and also their relationship with Paul. Others at Corinth, we know, were frequenting pagan temples and were entangled with idol worship there as well. And so whether it was that they were feeling guilty about some you know, secret sin they were in, or whether they just were getting a constant barrage of negativity toward Paul, this is probably why they couldn't open their hearts to Paul. It's because they were kind of linked in with these teachers and these religious practices. You know, you think about dating. Have you ever been in a dating relationship where you can just sense... This person is not into me anymore because somebody else is in the picture. I remember uh, this girl back in high school, I was really into her, and she was really responding to me, and I was like, okay, this is sweet. And at a certain point, it's just like the walls closed. 
And I kept initiating, and it just felt like, I was like, what's going on? I shouldn't read into this too much. And then she shows up with another dude. And I realized, okay, that's what was getting in the way here. And I think Paul is sort of realizing that. That's why he's doing all this open your heart to me. And you need to break ties with some of these super destructive relationships. Um, That can happen. Um, Another area of application. Some people wonder, does this apply to dating or other friendships? Is it a sin for a Christian to date a non-Christian? I I think it's, it's going too far to say that. I don't think it's morally wrong for a Christian to date a non-Christian. Um, in fact, I did try it once. Again, um, thinking, well, I'm having trouble getting a girlfriend anyway. <laughs> and um, so I was like, you know, I'll just, I'll just be this, this really positive influence on her. And, um, you know, like, maybe she'll become a Christian by dating me. (laughs) And so I was doing pretty good for about three or four days. (laughs) And then uh, I found um, myself starting to compromise and sort of over the next several weeks starting getting to the point where I was basically ready to, to jettison every standard I ever held for myself. And thank God she broke up with me. Um... Started dating my best friend, <laughs> which really, it really was one of the better things that happened to me. So, you know, I, I'd say be careful here, especially if the relationship gets more serious and it starts, I mean, dating often leads, and sometimes leads to marriage at least, and uh, you might find yourself in a pretty painful predicament. Um, Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, but they didn't bring him down to their level. That was the difference. He was able to befriend people and love people in a powerful way and bring them up to his level in so many cases. And so I guess one question to ask in in friendships is, am I influencing people to be more like Jesus or are they influencing me to be less like him? That's one print. You know, Paul Paul just lays out the principle here. He doesn't spell out every single possible type of relationship. So, and uh, you know, if, if I feel like they're, if it's the latter, if they're influencing me to be less like him, is there a way I can figure, can I figure out a way to maintain this relationship without getting pulled off track? I think we should try to do that, which is sometimes harder. Not always. But, um, you know, God has put us here to love a lost world. And so we just got to remember, you know, in this part, this, this middle section about separation, Everything in this passage, it starts with the relationship with God. And that's what the next several verses talk about here. You know, Paul says, we're the temple of the living God. And as God said in the Old Testament, I will live in them and walk among them. And so God lives inside of us. God is is walking among us. When the Christian body gathers together, there's like a sharing of the life of Christ. The Bible calls fellowship or koinonia. There's a building up of one another. There's tremendous strength that can be gained from that. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you ever just feel like I'm a nobody? Nobody cares about me. Who am I? Having identity, you know, questions. This is the answer to all those identity questions. God wants you to belong to him. He wants you to be one of his people. And you are safe with him. 
And then he says, therefore, come out from among them. And so we tend to think Christianity teaches the opposite. Be a good person, and then you can be one of God's people. Notice the opposite order here. He gives all these promises and says, because you have this relationship with God, that's what gives you the strength to resist some of these spiritually compromised situations. He says it again. He says, I will welcome you. God will gladly welcome you into his presence someday. And that is a promise. That is a guarantee. We don't have to be afraid of death because we know that when we die, God will be standing there welcoming us if we have come into a relationship with him through Jesus. He says, I will be your father and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so he promises, I will be the dad you always wanted, the dad you never had, even if you had an awesome dad, God is so much better. And for a lot of us, we didn't really have much of a father or one at all who was involved in our lives. And what God is promising is he says, I want to make that right. I want to, I want to supply what you were lacking here on earth. And so we experience the fatherhood of God now, and we experience it in an even clearer and, and less, less encumbered way when we get to heaven. And so he's our loving father. He's also the Lord Almighty. So he's, he's got that close, personal, tender, strong love of a father. And yet he's the almighty God. He's the all-powerful one. No one is more mighty than him. <clears throat> and he says, you'll be my sons and daughters. And so that says something not just about our relationship to him, but to each other. We are brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters in Christ where that concept comes from. And it's so cool. It's these new links, these new bond with one another. And he says all that. And then he says, therefore, having these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves. And so we pursue the kind of life, the kind of spiritual growth. But it's, again, it's based on these promises that we already have. And so becoming a Christian means you receive all the promises and then you learn the outworking in your daily life. And so we need, to, we need to start with a relationship with God. And also, if we have one, we need to remember these promises, to remember who we really are, God dwelling in us, God walking among us, God gladly welcoming us, God becoming our Father and us as sons and daughters, and He is the Lord Almighty. Those are the promises that we have. And any action we do flows out of the grace and love He's already given us. Got to get the order straight. Otherwise, it's not Christianity, it's religion. Religion is about what we do. Christianity is about what God has done. And so everything starts with a relationship with God in this passage. So that's, that's the part about separation. But remember, this was sandwiched in between a call for closeness, a call for intimacy, a call to open back up to Paul. And um, this is where spiritual friendships can be so cool. A great next step is trying to build some spiritual friendships. And once we have this common ground, and once we have this awesome, eternal, common purpose, we can build friend, new friendships on a level that you wouldn't believe. A lot of people don't understand the need for a purpose in a friendship. I really like C.S. Lewis's on, on this in the, in the Four Loves. Here's what he says. He says, lovers are normally face-to-face -face absorbed in each other. Friends side by side, absorbed in some common interest. 
He says, that's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. <laughs> the very condition of having friends is that we want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth as me? Would be, I see nothing, I don't care about the truth, I only want a friend. No friendship can arise, though affection, of course, may. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. I guess people come together of those things. But those who have nothing can share nothing, and those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. This is what we become when we become Christians. We become, all of a sudden, we have fellow travelers. We have brothers and sisters. We have God's Spirit in and among us as a community. And so, what I started to find when I became a Christian is I started to find that my relationships with people in Christian community were so much better than anything I'd been able to build in the world, and I was so ready for that. And it was awesome. It was people who I'd known for a few months I felt closer to than people who I had sort of known for years. And there was an openness there. There was an initiation. There was a love. There was an open-heartedness, really, is, is the best way to describe it. And that's what Paul says here. And it's, we can be open-hearted because it's a safe place. And, be, and also, because we have a common mission, we have something to focus on. I, you know, I remember even getting close to coworkers, you know? I'm working at Burger King, and I'm feeling close to the people who I'm working the drive-through with. And, you know, that's about something pretty insignificant. But, you know, when, we, when it comes to relationship with God, we have an eternal mission and real spiritual work that God will one day reward us for. And so we, and we, we find the stakes are higher and the reward is higher than anything that secular work could possibly give us. And so let's see what Paul says here. Just wrap up reading his last few verses. He says, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You're not restrained by us, but you're restrained in your own affections. Paul says, yeah, there's a block in our relationship, but he says, it's not on my end. And uh, that's enough to kill a friendship. You know, friendship is a two-way thing. We can love anyone. We can't be friends with anyone. There's, it depends on some reciprocity from that person. There's a lot of things that need to line up for a friendship to happen. You know, the Corinthians had attacked Paul so many times. Have you ever been attacked? Have you ever been slandered? You ever been stabbed in the back? You ever had somebody spread lies about you? Super painful. Especially the more you trusted that person. The more you'd been through with that person. It attacked him so many times. But he didn't close his heart off from them. You know, when we get, we get attacked, we just want to kind of go into a little fetal position, a little protective ball here. And may vow, that hurts so bad, I am never coming out. But Paul, what we see here is we see the love of Christ in action where he is moving toward them. He's taking a situation that should have looked like this and he's opening himself. And he says, I love you. I'm opening my heart to you. And that's risky. 
He did not close his heart off from them. Like Christ, he opened up to them again. And Christ is the greatest example of this. We turned away from God for no reason. And then Christ left, left heaven, came to earth, was mistreated, poor, died on a cross for our sins. That's the amount of love that he showed us. And then he pours out his heart, pours out his love in our hearts, even to people who've rejected him, who've given him the finger. Like Christ, Paul had learned how to love from the master. And this is why we can have the kind of relationships we can have in Christian community, because God is pouring a constant stream of love into our hearts, and that's what helps us to forgive, and that's what helps us to open up again and risk being hurt. He says, now, Corinthians, in a like exchange... I speak as to children. You think about the tenderness of a father to children there. He says, open wide to us also. He goes up and he says, I'm just gonna throw down my weapons. I'm opening my heart to you. And I'm saying, will you do the same for me? I'm not asking you to do any more than I've done for you. And I'm not asking you to do any more than Christ did. I'm just asking you to respond, Corinthians. Many of us have been hurt. Many of us have been hurt by people. And perhaps we put our walls up. Maybe it's not people. Maybe it's like a certain person or certain people. And we've shut them out. And we're holding them at arm's length. And that is not, that is not the love of Christ. It's not what God did for us. Look at Paul here. We need to learn to forgive. And we need to learn to open wide again. We need to learn tenderheartedness. We need to learn to take risks in relationships. We need to learn to love. And that is what Paul is saying. I love you. Will you respond? He says, make room for us in your hearts a few verses later. Yes, it's like, it's like they've been crowded out and there's just no more room in there. He says, you might need to push some of the things to the side to make room for us in there. Make room for us, he says. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. He's laying out his record. He says, I'm safe. Remember, he's appealing. We gotta have safety in our relationships if we're really gonna open up to one another. He says, I don't speak to condemn you. Paul is not bitter. He has found forgiveness. He has learned to forgive. He's drawn from the forgiveness he received from Christ and he's given that to others. You think that by holding bitterness, you're hurting the other person. That's not true. You're hurting yourself far more than them. In fact, they might not even know you're bitter at them. They don't see the hate beams you're firing at them. The secret curses you're, you're casting upon them in your heart. No, they probably, they've moved on with their lives probably. You're the one that needs to forgive. Otherwise, it's going to control you and sink its roots deeper and deeper. It's poisonous roots deeper into your heart. Paul says, I don't speak to condemn you. I've forgiven you guys. And then he says, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I remember reading this verse several years ago when he says, you are in our hearts no matter what. I realized once you love somebody, they're in there. 
once you have that kind of a bond, that kind of a connection, that kind of relationship, they are in there. I've known friends who have walked away from God. I can't believe how often I still think about them. Years later, it's love. It's the love of God. And Paul says, you guys, you're in my heart no matter what. So I'd like to be friends. He's appealing to them. And he says, you're in my heart to die together and to live together. That's sort of opposite. You know, usually you heard, we'll live and die together. Because, I mean, in the world, death is the end, right? But for the Christian, death is really just the beginning. It's the beginning of our relationship with God. It's on the other side of dying with, you know, we, we've, we were crucified with Christ, it says in another place. My new life begins. And so we've, we've, if we're both Christians, we both died with Christ and we've begun new life to, and we're together. But also we know that this life is not all there is. That one day we will pass out of this world and we'll be standing there in heaven looking over at this brother or this sister. And he says, God has made it so that we will live together forever with him. That's the kind of friendships that we can build, spiritual friendships in the yoke together. And that's what I got. All right, let's pray. Yeah, Lord, we are um, desperate for love. And uh, thank you that that is at the central core of who you are. Thanks for how you love us. And thank you that you want to teach us to love one another. And I thank you that your secure love is the basis for any sort of changes that you um, will lead us into in our lives. God, we, we thank you too that we know that um, after death, we will have life together with you and with one another. And I pray that we would be lights that shine out into this world, Lord, um, and uh, showing your love to a world that desperately needs it. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.